Welcome to When I Was On My Mission, the podcast where missionaries tell true, unbelievable stories that they experienced firsthand. I'm your host, Brian Jensen. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend, subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating in your podcast app. It really helps us out. Hi, everyone. This is your host, Brian Jensen. And I am so excited to bring you this week's episode with Rondo Feldberg. Rondo told an amazing story, and it was so good, I decided to split it into two episodes. And this is part one. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the When I Was On My Mission podcast. I am here with Rondo Feldberg. Rondo, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Just it's a fun thing, Brian. And we really appreciate having you. And I've heard, Rondo, that you have some amazing stories that you'd like to share from your mission. Before we jump into those, though, just a couple questions for you. First, uh, where did you serve on your mission? I served in southern Germany. Uh, When I entered the mission field, it was the Germany South Mission, and the name changed to the Germany Munich Mission. Um, And so it was basically Bavaria and Baden-Württemberg in the southern third of Germany. Very beautiful area. I have been to Munich once, and that is one of my favorite cities in all of Europe. All the sound of music stuff. Yes, yes. What years were you out on your mission? I was 74 and 75. So this is right during the Cold War then, and I would imagine there were some procedures and you know areas of, of care that you had to take while you were there on your mission. Is that right? I don't remember it. I was very aware of the fact that the Cold War was going on and we were in a divided Germany, very much so, and we were very aware of that. But our focus at the time was to preach the gospel. And so all of those communists and you know totalitarians had nothing to do with us. There you but go. Germany was very much... Uh, under the Soviet umbrella at the time. And I'm assuming you spoke German while you were there? Oh, yes. Any uh, other languages or or just the German focus? No, I, uh, I, I don't speak any other language. Very good. And I just want you to think back to leading up to your mission. First, were you excited to go on a mission? And second, when you read your call, were you excited about the mission that you were going to go to? Well, that's an interesting question, Brian, because I just assumed I would serve a mission. Everybody serves a mission. I was an athlete, a scholarship athlete at BYU. And so after my freshman year, I felt like I probably should go on a mission. So I went in and met with my coach at BYU. And he said, well, you know the process. You have to go talk to the brethren uh, if you want to go. So I went up to Salt Lake and met with Lauren C. Dunn, and Elder Dunn had been an athlete himself at BYU. He was, you know, a part of the NIT uh, basketball champions uh, back in the day. And so, I mean, he knew athletics, and he basically said, Rondo, you're already serving your your mission right now. Now, if you want to serve a proselyting mission after you finish serving this athletic mission, basically, that's fine, but finish this one first. And so 
I shrugged my shoulders and said, okay. I never thought about it again, but always felt I would serve a mission. And so then I finished up my four years at BYU. And uh, like many athletes, I wasn't as diligent as I should have been. I was busy being cool uh, instead of busy being yep. in class. And, and so I, I had some extra work to do to finish up, uh, to graduate. Right. And so I stayed on the extra year after I graduated and was the assistant wrestling coach at BYU. Uh, that's how I paid for, you know, the extra education to finish my bachelor's degree and then leave on my mission. Very good. And so I'm assuming you were a wrestler while you were at BYU. Is that right? I, I, I was. I, I, I was okay. I, I mean, I was a three-time WAC champion. I was wow. an All-American. I wrestled on the Olympic team. I, I was BYU's first ever freshman letterman. Uh, in a varsity sport, uh, just because my freshman year was the first year that any freshman could compete on varsity athletics. And they did it for what they at that time called the minor sports, which was everything except men's basketball and football. Uh, and then they started the major sports the next year. So my first year was the first year freshmen could compete. And and I started on the varsity as a freshman and, and actually led the BYU team in scoring. And we were a top 20 team. Um, and so... Yeah, I mean, I was, I, I fit most of the stereotypes we have of jocks, at least the negative <laughs> ones. Very good. I'm glad that you'll just be, you'll just own up to that then, Rondo. But that's amazing. Three-time WAC champion, wrestling the Olympic team. Just really quick, I've got to ask you, what, what happened at the Olympics? What was that experience like? Th that ties right into some of the things we plan to discuss later, um, because the year I was on the team was the Olympic year and the run-up to the Munich Games. And so I was expected to go to Minneapolis, the University of Minnesota, to train the whole summer with the Olympic team. Well, the guys on the team were very, very good at my weight. And I was the backup behind a guy named Dan Gable, who ended up winning a gold medal and didn't have a single point scored on him in the entire Olympics. And a guy named Gene Davis, um, also a gold medalist. And so I was their whipping boy every okay. day. And I knew it. And so I knew the only chance I had to compete in Munich was if one of them got hurt. And so I went out for a month basically was their punching bag you'd work out every morning every afternoon it was it was tough stuff and it was clear to me at least in my mind that neither of those guys uh, was going to go down and so my chance to compete was zero even though i was told i would go to munich with the team in case of an injury, then I had a decision to make because I had already finished at BYU and it was time to serve my mission. So I decided, nope, I'm not going to do it. And I left the training camp and came home to begin my preparations for my mission. So I left on my mission at about the same time I would have been leaving to go to Germany for the Munich Games. Wow, that is amazing. I'm assuming that is an extremely hard choice to give up a spot on the Olympic team to go to the Olympics in person 
had to serve a mission was it was that was it just a clear choice for you or was it hard to, to make it wasn't those? a hard decision at all in my mind because i had already decided years before that that's something i needed to do i needed to serve a mission um i was one of four brothers all four of us served missions and and three of the four of us served after we finished we were all college wrestlers and we all finished up our wrestling and then went on our missions only my youngest brother served after his freshman year and then came back and finished up well that is amazing so you put in your papers to serve a mission after you turned down the olympic team so i'm assuming you didn't know that you were going to get called to munich at the, i didn't have any idea where i was going to get called but i did not want to get called to germany because <laughs> i had taken two years of german in school and it was so hard and i knew i was articulate i knew i i could persuade people but not in german not in german and and so i explained this all to the lord uh, why i needed to get called okay. to an english speaking mission i mean i made it very very clear and <laughs> and and so i was shocked when my mission call came for germany because the lord completely ignored all my prayers and my logic and my explanations which were very good in my opinion but i got called to munich and uh, it was the best thing that ever happened wow that is so funny i've i've mentioned this a little bit before in the past on the podcast but i was certain that i was going to get called to denmark on my mission because my family's from there my grandpa served his mission there my dad served his mission there and then my grandpa was the mission president there oh my goodness and and i thought yeah i'm brian jensen i'm i'm gonna go to denmark definitely well, you had a family legacy i had a family legacy and i remember explaining to the lord and pleading with the lord send me to denmark that's that's how this is supposed to happen and feeling pretty confident and then opening up the mission call and it was to raleigh north carolina which uh english speaking which totally surprised me and honestly i wasn't super excited right when i when i read it but just like you said it was the best thing that ever could happen to me and i met the most incredible people of my life there so kind of a similar experience but instead of wanting to be english speaking i was wanting to go foreign so on the opposite side of that coin well I, I i guess i have to confess a little bit that i had a little bit of a lazy bone okay <laughs> and it wasn't that i didn't want the experiences that I knew I would have in Germany, it just sounded like so much work. And this language, I mean, words were 20, 30 letters long, and, and it was just such a hard language. And then the, the way they put their sentences together, it just, I just thought, no, uh, I can't do this. I have a hard time believing that being three-time WAC champion and on the Olympic team that you had a lazy bone, but maybe a little bit for learning German. But academic. Academic. Okay, fair enough. Academic. If there bone. was a chance it would get noticed and I would get recognition for it, I was all in. You're all in. Okay. <laughs> fair enough. Well, this is an amazing, amazing backstory leading up to your mission. And I would love just to get right into the the story that you you have for us tonight. Can you take us away with that, Rondo? 
Well, as I was preparing for my mission, we were in what they called the language training mission at that time, which started out in Salt Lake. And during the, my LPM experience, we were transferred then to Provo to some buildings that still exist, but are not dormitories or anything anymore. But they're the ones on University Avenue and just off of University Avenue that look very European. Okay. And and have the timbered architecture. Well, that's where we were. And every Sunday evening, a BYU professor uh, by the name of Hugh Nibley, who was of some reputation at the time, Hugh Nibley would come and do our Sunday evening study periods. It was basically like a two-hour fireside uh, with Hugh Nibley. It was a magnificent experience as he talked about Germany, and we began to first hear the gospel taught in the German language. And the last week, um, he warned us a week in advance to be prepared, but we didn't really know what we were preparing for. But then he told us that he was not going to be leading a lesson that last night. He wanted every one of us who were going to Germany to bear our testimony and then to give to all of the other missionaries so that we would be accountable for it, the goal for our missions. Well, uh, all of the missionaries, uh, one by one by one, stood up and bore their testimonies and recited their goals. And it did not surprise me at all that these goals were, I'm going to read the Book of Mormon in German twice on my mission cover to cover. I'm going to read in English and German simultaneously and on and on. And they stayed way away from baptism and conversion uh, commitments because they were aware that at the time the, the baptism rate in Germany was averaged less than one convert baptism per missionary for his entire mission. So they, they knew better than to go there. But I felt a strong prompting. I really did. And I was one of the last ones, just the way it worked out. And so when I bore my testimony, I told them I was going to have a convert baptism for every month of my mission. It was <laughs> stunning in that room. You could hear 30-some um, elders sucking their air in at once, along with a few adults, I, and uh, with, a, with a broad grin from Hugh Nibley, who, by the way, was also a big-time wrestling fan and had been a, a, a mentor and a friend to me because he did love wrestling. He was just delighted with that. I felt it, and so I said it. And, and so I just assumed that it was just a matter of getting on the plane and making it happen. <laughs> and so while all the other missionaries that were traveling with me were sleeping on that overnight flight to Europe, I was busy teaching the gospel because I just assumed I was going to have my first baptism in the airport when we landed. Oh, naturally. Yeah. Yes. Well, um, of course, it didn't turn out that way. <laughs> but I was very enthusiastic and very committed to that goal, which I knew was not my goal. I knew it had come from heaven. And and because it came from heaven, it was going to happen. And so I started into my mission with that kind of attitude. I was called to serve in a brand new area 
where missionaries had never served before on the Neckar River in southern Germany. The headquarters of a company we're now fairly familiar with, it was Audi headquarters were in this one uh, that my companion and I opened. And we began teaching a German family. We prepared them for baptism, and we had the baptismal date set, and I was excited because this was going to be the first four baptisms of my uh, baptism per month. And the week before their baptism date, I got notified I was being transferred. I couldn't believe it. Oh, no. I was stunned, but I was transferred from... Neckarzulm to Augsburg. A lot of people said, no, no, those are yours. You taught them, da, da, da. No, I, that was a cop-out. I didn't baptize them. They didn't count for me. And so those four, even though they were baptized the week after I left, and they were wonderful members of the church, it didn't count for me. I'm sure Hugh Nibley was proud that you that you didn't count them and went to get some more. But. Well, I don't know. I've I haven't had that conversation with Brother Nibley. Someday, maybe I will. Yeah. But we got to Augsburg, and nobody worked harder than me. I mean, I was driven, and I was driven because I knew what I was doing. I had to baptize for every month, and I was already four in the hole. Four. And it just didn't happen. At the end of my first year, I had exactly that many baptisms. You had a goose egg by the big that, goose egg. Wow. There may be other people that would argue with me, but I would say there are a lot of missionaries from my mission who even today, as grandpas would say, no, nobody worked harder than Felbert. I worked so hard. Well, let me ask you then, was that, I mean, was that discouraging to feel like that God gave you a goal? Wasn't your goal, like you said, but by the end of the first year you had zero or were you just still, you still knew it was going to happen? It came from heaven. Okay. I didn't know how it was happening, but it was going to happen. I mean, you read the scriptures, one baptism per month, and you don't get any for the first year may sound like a big deal. But when you read the Book of Mormon and all of the stuff that happened in the Book of Mormon, that's nothing for the Lord. Yes. And and people used to just roll their eyes at me. Oh, no, here comes Elder Felbert. Because I just knew that was not my problem. It was the Lord's problem. And, (laughs) And in my view, the Lord was digging the hole for himself, not me. I love that. And you do think back to the stories in the Book of Mormon and you think, you know, Alma, how many people did he baptize at once? Oh, yeah. In that, you know, how many? Well, a Mormon and I figured it was going to happen somehow, yeah. some way. All right. Okay. Well, let's keep going. We're year one. We got a goose egg and there's ground to make up. There was ground to make up. After Augsburg, I was transferred to Nuremberg where the war trials were held. And that's when I, I began in leadership in a big way. And so I had a lot of administrative work, but I also was a little bit of a, a kind of a devious personality. Okay. And most of these missionary apartments in Germany had had missionaries in them for quite a long time, you know, many years. Yes. And what I learned fairly early on was that the best source of referrals was right there. 
And most of these missionary apartments were filthy. So what I would do every time I was transferred is, and, and missionaries knew it, if you got, if, if Elder Felberg was going to be your companion, the first thing you did is you cleaned the apartment yeah. top to bottom. And every scrap of paper that had a name or an address on it was put in a giant pile in the middle of the largest room in the apartment while you cleaned the whole apartment. And our apartment there had been the zone leader apartment for several years. So you can imagine how much paper was there. We had a huge stack in the middle of the living room when we were done cleaning the apartment. And then Elder Funk and I, he was my uh, companion, knelt in prayer, talked very, very directly, openly, and pleadingly with the Lord uh, about what needed to happen. And then we sat down together, and I gave Elder Funk his instructions. You can look at each piece of paper for no more than 10 seconds, and you have to put it in one pile or the other pile, the keep pile or the later, maybe never pile. And when we were done, we took the keep pile, we had a big map of the Nuremberg area, and we started putting pins in the map for those addresses that, that were in that pile. And we're not 10 minutes into this, Brian, then all of a sudden your heart's starting to go thump, 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 because we're seeing an arc going out of the city of Nuremberg into one of the little villages not far away and back the other way. It was remarkable. Wow. And once we had it all pinned, we went out and started visiting. At the very end of that arc, the little village of Pierbaum, we knocked on a door and the fellow that came to the door said, we prayed you here. Wow. Uh, we taught that family and baptized them. He was a, it turned out to be a, a quite a successful and, and pretty well-known engineer of some reputation uh, in that part of Germany. And we taught and baptized their whole family. It was a remarkable experience. And those were the first baptisms that I got to count. There you go. How many was that? So it ended up being five baptisms. Five, okay. um, and on the Saturday morning, when we were getting ready to baptize this family, it was probably, oh, you know, middle of the afternoon baptism. And we're there a couple hours early, like most missionaries, getting the font filled, getting ready there in Nuremberg. And all of a sudden, the mission president pulls up. I mean, the mission president lives in Munich. Yeah. That's several hours away from Nuremberg. President, what are you doing here? Well, interesting you should ask, Elder Feldberg. Sister Kelling was awakened at about four this morning out of a sound sleep. And when she awoke, I was already sitting at the side of the bed. We knelt in prayer as to why we'd been awakened out of a sleep. And we were told that you were going to be baptizing the president of the Nuremberg State today. <laughs> and we needed to get up there because this was a big deal for the church and for the generations to come. <laughs> um, and so we got in the car and drove. So tell us what's happening here today. How did this brother, the future stake president of the Nuremberg stake, 
How did he know to pray for you? What what did he pray well, for? Well, as it, as it turns out, it wasn't quite that dramatic. What had happened is he sang in a famous choir called the Hunts Sox Corps in Nuremberg that rehearsed in the opera hall there in Nuremberg. But apparently it had gone under construction and remodeling some years before. And so during that construction time, this choir did their rehearsals in the LDS meeting house because the LDS meeting house was the only place that had enough choir seats, you know, set the way we do in in LDS meeting houses Ah, where they could actually sit like a choir. And so for several months, he had gone there for his choir practices and he had picked up a pamphlet while he was there some years before, hadn't thought about it again until they had become quite unhappy with things in Protestant church, in the Lutheran church, and had begun to pray about it as a family and had decided that one of the things they needed to pray about was the pamphlet that he had. And so on that day, when we knocked on their door, uh, they had been praying as a family uh, that the Lord would send to them someone. And it turned out that it was us. Wow. And And you guys had cleaned out the apartment and gotten all the pieces of paper and put yep. the keepers in one pile and the not keepers in the other. And the Lord showed you the the map or the path on how to get there. That's oh that's- yeah. The keeper, the keeper pile was was just as clear as it could be. <laughs> and they were at the furthermost point of the ark out of the city of Nuremberg. It was probably, I'm gonna say 15 miles from the center of Nuremberg out to this little village of Pierbaum where they lived and they were the the furthermost pin on the map. Wow, that's incredible. But let's let's get back to so the mission president shows up and it's time I think for the baptism. Yeah, and and well and he and sister Kelling. Now his name was Hans Wilhelm Kelling. Well, Hans Kelling was a German professor at BYU. He he'd been born in Germany and and he and his mother had come to this country as refugees uh, after the war. And and then he was a professor at BYU. Wonderful, wonderful man, he was a German professor. And so he was my mission president and he and Sister Kelling were there for the baptism. It turns out that Brother Spitzer wasn't the stake president. He was the district president because they weren't a stake yet, they were a district. So, So, I mean, that's the story of Nuremberg and the baptisms there and then i was sort of working away in nuremberg thinking that you know we had 20 or 30 baptisms up there because we had a lot of pins on that map yeah we had a lot of work to do and out of the blue i mean it was only weeks after we had baptized uh, the spitzer family i got the notice of a transfer That wraps up part one of Rondo's amazing story in Munich. He leaves us on a bit of a cliffhanger, but brings it all together in part two. Thanks as always for listening to When I Was On My Mission, and I hope you'll tune in next week for the conclusion. I hope you enjoyed this episode of When I Was On My Mission. 
If you or someone you know has a great mission story, we would love to hear it. Please email us at contactonmymission at gmail.com or DM us on Instagram or Facebook at When I Was On My Mission. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend, subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating in your podcast app.